Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Talking about chicken a la king, mango and garbanzo, tabbouleh, potatoes and vegetables with roasted garlic and basil, zucchini, ziti, granola, fruit bar. Look at all this beautiful food. Welcome to Green Eggs and Dan, where I interview amazing people with amazing lives, but all I care about is what is in their fridge. My guest today is an author and director who's directed a 15-part docu-series called Chinese Restaurants, and he's author of Have You Eaten? Stories from Chinese restaurants around the world. I've been reading it. It's a fantastic read. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on. It's Chuck Kwan, everyone. Hello. So, Chuck, I have so many questions for you because I am so fascinated by the culture of Chinese restaurants in, let's call it the diaspora. But before we get to that, let's get into your fridge. You guys can see Chuck's fridge. On my Instagram, at StandUpDan, I'm going to share my screen, and here we go. All right, Chuck, you've got a great fridge here. I'm not going to lie. You came, in, you came in with a wonderful fridge. You're in Canada. I don't know if the Canadian supermarkets uh, just deliver the vegetables a lot more organized and neat than ours, but on the bottom row here, you've got wonderful carrots, celery. I'm not sure what that vegetable is over there. I think the, that's uh, Chinese green. Chinese greens, right? Everything just looks really meticulous. Nice. You 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 got a good fridge, Chuck. I'm very impressed. Thank with you. This. Well, it's not my fridge alone. It's my wife's arrangement as well. Sometimes she's very particular about how where the food goes and where where it goes anywhere. So I give a lot of credit to her. That's nice. That's nice of you. Yeah, you've got the uh, sliced pork here on the second row. And what is that over there? Is that like some sort of papaya? Yeah. It's a cut-up papaya. I, I buy them from the store, so uh, you don't have to buy the whole papaya. You can buy a portion of it. Love it. And the door, to me, was really the most exciting part, because this is where we have a lot of the fun uh, right. condiments. Right. And uh, a lot of these I wasn't familiar with. I'm familiar, obviously, with hoisin sauce, familiar with this uh, sweet bean sauce. I love that you've got the tandoori curry paste. Right. Always very fun to add anything. Uh, what is, so then there are some Chinese sauces that I have no idea what they are. What is this over here? That's another bean sauce and it's, it's a bit sweet and you can add it to a lot of actually Korean Chinese cooking or uh, Northeastern cooking, uh, North mm. China cooking. So they use a lot of that sweet bean paste. I think it came from a broad bean, romantic broad bean. So it's another one of these, uh, wonderful, wonderful, aromatic, tastes good bean paste that Chinese use all the time. What is the main source of umami in Chinese sauces? Is, is it mostly mushroom? Is I, it some I, sort I guess of you can get a lot, a lot of umami comes from the bean paste. 
Uh, okay. Just like the uh, Japanese have their own uh, miso. Yeah. Miso is, again, is, is fermented soybean. Again, I think the fermentation does wonderful things and it produces all the umamis in the uh, in, in all the beans and, and soybeans and so forth. Fantastic. What's this guy over here? This There's like a, a little yellow bottle on the bottom oh, shelf. Oh, that's my special precious usu sauce. Usu is a Japanese kind of a, a citrus taste tasting soy sauce. We use it for shabu shabu beef. Mm. And use it for uh, dip, you know how how you dip uh, beef into a hot pot and then you bring it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you dip it in these sauces and that, that's wonderful. My my daughter loves it and uh, she can drink the whole thing. Very cool. Okay, so let's get into it because I'm I've always been fascinated by Chinese restaurants and I'll tell you why. I mean, my I'm of Iranian descent, Great. and. When you see, when you go to Persian restaurants, it's always full of Persian people, mm-hmm. okay? They, you don't have much um, assimilation of flavors, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas when you go to a Chinese restaurant all over America, anywhere you go, you're outside of like, let's say the, the hubs of like city hubs, you're rarely going to find Chinese people in there. There's something about Chinese restaurants that have, that have become that have made themselves mainstays of cuisine in every country. I'm reading now with your book, but I'm just going to talk about America because that's, that's, that's my lived experience. You know, when I was touring as a comedian, I would travel to the most random parts of America, mm-hmm. little crap towns <laughs> all over the country <laughs> that just had fast food. There was a McDonald's, there was a Taco Bell, there was a Burger King, there was a Wendy's, and there was a Chinese restaurant. Right. And I was always like, how the hell did this happen? So explain this to me. Well, I like to say it's a marketing geniuses of the Chinese people, but that's not the real answer. The, the real answer is that the Chinese have to survive and, you know, what's best, what's, you know, and you make that food globalized in the sense that uh, people crave for it. And it can be done simply, cheaply. Uh, you don't have a fancy French cooking that you deal with and everybody can can welcome it. So I think Chinese food has taken over the imagination of most of the world in terms of um, something edible, something cheap, and something fulfilling. Not to mention, of course, I, I'm biased, of course, I, I think Chinese food is one of the best cuisine in the world. But uh, it's, it's, it, it's a testimony to the survival of Chinese immigrants. You will see that the reason why you find them in small towns because they're away from competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you are only one, one, one of the uh, one or two, only one of the two Chinese restaurants in a small town, you guarantee you, you get business from the Americans. So in that sense, it's, it's the way of going where the, where the customers are. It, it also, yeah. you know, when you talk about the, the menu itself, you can see that Compared to Iranian food, Chinese menu tend to be a little bit more hybrid, a little bit more variety, not quite the classical traditional Chinese cuisine that we know, we as Chinese know, but they tend to be very adaptive to the environment, to the customers. General Cho's chicken is, is not Chinese, it's American. It was invented in New York. So in that sense, a Chinese are very adaptive about adopting 
the cuisine to cater to the taste of the clientele. Yeah, which is super interesting because, yeah, like you said, when you go to like a quote unquote authentic Chinese restaurant, it doesn't it doesn't look anything like the uh, the menu of like the, you know, the 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 place down the block that you're getting takeout from. Right. I had a theory and I'm and I'm now realizing how wrong it was. But my theory initially was because I my theory was, well, there's probably a lot of Chinese restaurants all over America in every little pocket because the railroad builders were Chinese and it spread them around the country. But I guess, does that work out though? Because that was generations and generations and generations ago. And I'm assuming that most of these Chinese restaurants in little towns uh, throughout America are new immigrants. Is that true or no? Yes, that's very true. But the the genesis of, of the railroad workers is still very true. In the late 19th century, you know, Chinese railroad workers, after they uh, they follow the railroad and they go across America, and of course, once a railroad is built, they many many times they will no longer need it. And uh, uh, countries like Canada and and the U.S. uh, tend to try to kick them out. So they say, "Well, no, we're we're surviving. uh, So we'll just open a Chinese restaurant, and and that becomes a livelihood for many of these people." And again, I want to point to the fact that none of these people are chefs, obviously. Right. Uh, so they're, they're peasants, they're farmers, they have been recruited by the uh, Transcontinental Railroad uh, to build the railroad. So, you know, here they are. They had to find a skill and they quickly adapted to making Chinese food. And of course, once that gained popularity, uh, the, the later waves of immigrants then follow and go to small towns that were not normally far off from the railroad. Interesting. What is, you know, I I was in Paris recently Mm -hmm. and I thought it was so weird that every Chinese restaurant in Paris had the word rest. It would have whatever the name of the restaurant was, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and then underneath it, it would say in French, restaurant chinois. Mm -hmm. Like it's telling you it's a Chinese restaurant as if like you couldn't really figure it out. Is that something that is what you see? Because I guess maybe in America, since we're kind of a multi, well, we're a multicultural society, I feel like we don't necessarily need to use uh, the word Chinese. Yeah, like we're yeah, used to I, it. Like you know, oh, that's I, what you can I, I tell. I don't know. Them. I can't uh, tell you the the the, uh, the reason why. I I think it's that maybe the French were saying, okay, we better uh, type uh, identify that. But I I, I an inter- in a, another interesting thing is in France in Paris. A lot of the Chinese immigrants came from Laos, came from Vietnam. So you will find a lot of the restaurants have the kind of uh, Laotian and the Vietnamese uh, kind of taste to it mm. uh, because they, the, a lot of them are, have come from um, places like Southeast Asia. So again, the, 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 the kind of immigrants will influence the kind of food that you're getting. So maybe it's a way for French to say, look, you know, this is really Chinese restaurant rather right. than uh, Vietnamese restaurant, because they do have Vietnamese restaurants, which are run by sometimes Chinese Vietnamese. Right. So in terms of you brought up General Tso's chicken first, uh, as that being like a purely American invention, or, you know, I guess let's call it a Chinese American invention. Right. What other countries have interesting 
invented Chinese foods that because like I saw you went to there's there's a place in Israel that you visited right uh, Madagascar uh, right. just where was there the the let's call it the most interesting fusion let's say that has become like the part of like that country's lexicon of Chinese food well I I think you can find the fusion and hybrid almost everywhere and it's it very much dependent on the, uh, the adaptiveness and the creativeness of uh of uh, the, the restaurant proprietor. However, you funny that you mentioned Madagascar because the national dish of Madagascar is wonton soup. It's called really? chinois. And, uh, and you know, when I got there, I said, what, what the hell is soup chinois? And it, it, it's, a, it's a French word for uh, a wonton soup. And somehow the Chinese brought wonton soup and rickshaw into Madagascar in the uh, turn of the century, uh, turn of the last century. So in that sense, it has been adopted into, you know, becoming kind of the national cuisine, pretty much like curry masala chicken become a quote unquote national cuisine for the Brits. Right, exactly. That's so interesting. It's funny, I do a lot of food history on this podcast, and I mm. realize that most foods that we eat end up coming from China. It's like anything, uh, if you go back far enough, it came from China. Churros came from China. I didn't know that. You know, <laughs> yeah, churros ultimately are, um, I forget what the name of the, of the dessert is, but it, it's, a, it's basically a, it came from China, you know, and it, most rice dishes came from China. Most noodle right. dishes came from China. Right. I know right. the Italians like to fight back on that, but we know it was, it was the Chinese. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> I don't think it's I don't think it's it's that much of a debate. Um, well, uh, it's funny you mentioned rice because I found out in my research and in my in making of the film and writing the book, Chinese introduced rice into South America through Peru. Wow. Chinese workers were were hired uh, to build railroads as well as uh, to be farmers and and haciendas, and they stipulated in their contract that they have to have their rice. But Peruvians don't eat rice, they have the, the Inca potatoes. So what happened is that the Chinese said, no, no, no problem, we'll grow our own rice. So they introduced a plantation of rice into the Latin American diet, because rice was never, was not in a, a Latin American or uh, plant. So, you know, it's a bit of interesting food history, and today, the Peruvian cuisine known as Shifa is actually a hybrid of Chinese and Peru. And it is the national cuisine of Peru. It's, it's Shifa. And mm -hmm. Shifa actually comes from Chinese word, have you eaten? So uh, Shifa is both used as a verb to, to Shifa means to eat Chinese. Uh, and, and a noun as, as in a Shifa restaurant or as in the food, Shifa food. So in that sense, uh, uh, no, Chinese food has a, a very, very big influence on the cuisine and, and the rice plantation in Peru. In my book, I also talk about the reverse, where things are brought into China that was not, not native of China. Tomato, for example. Like the Italians will tell you that, uh, you know, to tomatoes came from South America. So, so all yeah. that kind of, Food traveling history is, is very, very, to me, very, very interesting. That's cool because you hear a lot about the exports of, of Chinese food culture, but not quite the imports. Is, are, is tomato used widely in, uh, in Chinese cuisine? Uh, more, more of a modern Chinese cuisine, yeah. 
they use mm. quite a bit, but not, of course, not as much as the Italians do. Yeah. I did think it was interesting that regionally within China, you'll have more wheat-based dishes up north. That's um, right. Right, because there's not as much there's not as much rain, whereas in the south, it's the, yeah, it's the weather and the temperature and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So as a you know, I am Iranian. I'm also Jewish, and and Jews in America have a very interesting relationship with Chinese restaurants. Right. Uh, when it comes to Christmas, because right. Jews have nowhere to go, and Chinese <laughs> restaurants are open, and. It's the funniest night of like uh, cultural fusion you will you will find where it's just uh, Jews happily chomping down on Chinese food and Chinese restaurants just like packed to the gills. What when did is that a thing that has a history behind it? Is there something also? Do Chinese people celebrate uh, Christmas? Why are the restaurants open? Well, uh, they could, they uh, they they may not, but that's not the not, that's not the point because. The point is that if you open a Chinese restaurant, if, if the restaurant's open on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, you guarantee a lot of good business because everybody else is closed. I think I think the Jewish Chinese food thing is mostly a New York thing, right? Uh, that has basically an American uh, kind of tradition. I, I don't, I'm not sure they have this in Europe, but but certainly the way I can explain it is that Chinese people are are smart. They say, "Wow, you know." Here's a whole group of people who have nowhere to go. Let me just open the restaurant and have them come and eat it. So that became the kind of uh, tradition, I guess. I love it. I will tell you it happens in a lot more cities in America than just New York. I'm in LA and every Chinese restaurant was packed on right? Christmas Eve. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Where, you know, being from New York, though, I always associate Chinese restaurants with ducks hanging in the window. Right. So where did that come from? The the I know nothing about that. That culture of, right. of of hanging the foods in front of the of the window is that to attract customers? I mean, that's that seems like the obvious thing. I I, I don't know, uh, but it's it's a southern thing. Uh, it's a Cantonese thing. Not because mm. Cantonese do the barbecue duck and the and the pig and the and 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 the chicken but that way, and because they can be safely. Put on the window so for you have to hang it up, and then when when it, when the customer comes in, you can cut a piece or cut half of it or chop it up the way they they like it. So it's a way of selling whole whole chicken. And what's better way to advertise your wear than than to hang it up and attract customers? I think that's where it came from. Yeah, in, in Canada, we had a big uh, controversy back in the seventies in Vancouver, uh, the city. Department of Health decided that that's not sanitary, so they, they order all the Chinese restaurants to put the food in in a heated area, and then of course what that does is turn the ducks into awful piece of dry meat. Right. So you have a big uh, protest. It actually was a civil movement kind of protest, and say, look, allow us to have that kind of uh, hangout duck in in in, in the in the uh, in the uh, restaurant. A window, but without that kind of lamb that you 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 tend to use to keep the things warm, and we even did a protest in in the parliament and in, in the capital of Ottawa that we actually brought these food into the parliament and 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 show to the members of the parliament and say, "Hey, look, you know uh, this is safe to eat, so let's let's have a barbecue meat uh, dinner." So we we treated them all to barbecue meat just to convince them. Do not 
you know, do not enforce a, a law that says that, you know, you have to eat up your, your meat to a certain temperature. I mean, just imagine people come around and say, you cannot have your sushi because your fish is not cooked. You know, it's, it's yeah. the same kind of logic that we are, we're, we're dealing with here in, in terms of uh, eating. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I feel like there's a lot of that in America as well, that the, you know, we are... When it comes to the health department, there's definitely a lot of let's call it nanny state things of like trying to trying to micromanage these restaurants and what they can do. I remember there was a restaurant uh, called Le Bernardin, which is like a three star Michelin restaurant in right. New York, and they Eric, got a uh, Eric Repair. That's a restaurant, yeah. Eric Repair, and they got a C from the health board because of some way that they were storing fish. I mean, any anyone who can who can give a three star Michelin restaurant a C on health grades. I mean. It's so ridiculous. Um, but I do feel like immigrant cultures definitely suffer with that a lot because I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of us come from places where the there isn't a ton of refrigeration and things are more fermented and that's how they're preserved and things right. are in a jar out on the, you know, on on the counter. And I think people have a tough time with that in, in America, at least. It's like uh, people cringe when 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 they go to a wet market in Asia. Yeah. While you see the meat and the fish and all hanging around and in, in, in the market, you know, my cameraman when we were traveling and he would say, "Well, you know, this is what I thrive in," and and he just hate this kind of a pristine, kind of packaged meat in a pristine supermarket in North America. You know, packaged dead meat. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I, I do that a lot uh, in my travel. I, I, I made a point of going to, with my restaurant owner to the wet market to see how they shop, yeah. to see how they buy food, and, and of course, to see how they prepare the food. Yeah, very interesting. I'm wondering if you think that there's, is there a country that has not been taken by Chinese food? Are there places where inroads have not been made? I don't think so. I, I think you will agree with me. Um, basically, Chinese food is everywhere. Of course, more so in some countries than others, but certainly I, I don't think you'll find the like of Chinese restaurants around the world. And this is what makes it so interesting because, you know, somehow it's, it's a non-political thing, but somehow, you know, Chinese food conquers the world, you know? Um, <laughs> right. So, uh, or, or I get, it gets your stomach. So, you know, yeah, that's a, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's a great thing. I, uh, I just got turned on to Hunan Lamb from this place, uh, Tasty Noodle House in LA. Very, very good uh, Chinese restaurant. It's probably, it's, I feel like in LA, you have a lot more authentic Chinese food, let's call it. And like, in, I feel like in New York, it's a lot more of the Chinese American food. Yeah. But man, this Hunan lamb, it kills me. I love it. I think it's got some Szechuan peppercorns in it. It's got these fun chilies in it. It's just like there's an explosiveness to Chinese food where it's like, it's almost like we're not going for like subtle balance. We're going for an explosion in your mouth. And <laughs> it, it hits so well. I mean, it's so satisfying. Right. Sichuan peppercorns were illegal in America for a while, right? That's what I found out. I didn't know that until uh, somebody who was interviewing me pointed out the fact that, uh, because I, we were talking about mapa tofu, mm. you know, the, the kind of ma and la in, in terms of hotness, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Ma is a uh, Chinese word for numbness, like, yes, in, and Sichuan peppercorns are a numbing thing. So it numbs yeah. it down. 
And then la is the chili hot pepper kind of taste. So, you know, in Mapo Dofu, you have the ma and the la in there. And then the, the, this person pointed out that, you know, it was illegal. I was shocked. I would say, hey, you know, like, you've you never been to Mexico? <laughs> right. I just came back from Mexico and, you know, I was yeah, getting a nice uh, uh, tour, uh, kind of guide through, through the Mexican cuisine. And I'm, I'm just amazed at how many chili peppers, they, how many variety of chili peppers that they, they have and, and how they go on and on about it, you know. And it's just amazing. It's a totally different food culture. Totally. Jews and Chinese food. It's not just about Christmas. The Jews who emigrated to New York City moved to the Lower East Side in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And what's the Lower East Side next to? Chinatown. And back then, people stuck to their own. The Jews opened delis to service other Jews, the German restaurants serviced Germans, and the Italian restaurants catered to Italians. Jews were not welcome in any of these establishments. However, the Chinese accepted them with open arms. So it was a way that New York Jews could step outside their culinary comfort zone without stepping outside their actual comfort zones. Cut to today, eating Chinese food has become a meaningful symbol for American Judaism. In the cuisine, Jews found a modern means of expressing their traditional cultural values. The savoring of Chinese food is now a ritualized celebration of immigration, education, family, community, and continuity. Mazel tov. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So uh, I'm going to get to the questions that I ask uh, every guest on my show. Okay. Uh, starting, starting with, what is your earliest food memory? Well, besides home-cooked meal, um, my earliest, I would say, memorable dinner outside my house was we had freshly killed chicken wrapped in paper and deep fried through the paper to cook the chicken. And the paper then preserves all the uh, juices and the condiments and the soy sauce that goes with the chicken. And then you, you just tear out the chicken pocket and then you eat the, the chicken the paper pocket and eat the chicken from the, from the pocket. It, it, to me, it was, we were eating it open air in the farm, in the chicken farm, you know, prepared by the, uh, the farmer. So it was just amazing. Uh, that was my earliest, you know, wonderful meal that I've had. And I have never forgotten about that experience. I think I was maybe six or seven years old. Where was that? In Singapore. In Singapore. Amazing. Yeah, when, when there was a whole debate about, well, do we import Australian frozen chicken into the market? You know, all that stuff. Because we were used to just going to the chicken farm and buying chicken, right? So right. it's not that like, and then suddenly uh, Singapore supermarkets start bringing in uh, frozen New Zealand lamb and frozen uh, uh, Australian chicken. And I say, well, yuck, what kind of chicken is this? So, you know, that, that, that just, you know, the whole kind of, 
food experience in Singapore is, is actually quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They have a lot of like these food markets that look really, really fun. Right. Is that where there's the, uh, the chicken and rice? Is that the a Singapore yes. thing? Yes. That's another one of my favorite. I think I answered that question to your, uh, if you were on a desert island, what would you eat for the rest of your, your life? And I say, yeah, high nine chicken rice. Give it to me any day. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so Hainan chicken rice, explain it a little bit. I think the chicken is cooked in uh, some sort of, is it, is it cooked in it's, like a soy it's a sauce? It's a boil in, uh, in it's, it's a boil uh, chicken. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nothing, very simple. But then the, the chicken's juice and, and the water that you use, you make, you, you use it to make the rice. Mm, so your rice right. is then chicken flavor. Almost like a chicken soup flavor, rice. How fun! And of course, you you eat that kind of cool and not a not a hot chicken, and and uh, it it's a most wonderful, uh, amazing dish. Yeah, it's one of those things. I remember when you hear how it's when you hear it described, you're like, ah, oh, that can't be that good, and then you have it, and you're like, oh my god, this is yes. amazing. And fruit can be like this, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you you say, hey. That's not no big deal how you make it, but then when you tasted it, then it's amazing. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, what is your death row meal? So let's think of a reason you're on death row. So the Canadian government makes another law that uh, you can't use plum sauce in any in any cuisine. You lose it. You go over there and you bring enough plum sauce to suffocate them, and they all die. And now you're on death row. Right. So <laughs> I'm. Uh, I would. Get, get my warden to prepare me a steam whole fish with ginger and scallion. That's my go-to classical Cantonese dish. You know, obviously the fish has to be fresh, fresh, fresh. Yeah. But then, you know, there's nothing, nothing beats it in terms of, uh, you know, the ultimate kind of, you know, it's very subtle, it's very fresh, and it's actually quite easy to make. But then you preserve the, the entire freshness and the sweetness of the fish. Uh, mm. Here's an interesting question. I'm I'm gonna side si on a side note. What are the the main proteins used in China? Um, are are what is it? Is it mostly duck and lamb? No, I think it's pork. A Chinese use a lot of oh, pork. That's right. And in my book, I talk about pork belly a lot. Mm. You know, I have walk there. Are, there are three or four kinds of pork bellies in Chinese cooking. There's the Hakka pork belly, there's the northern pork belly. So they're all done a little bit differently. However, the, the, the main thing about pork belly is that you get the fat out of the skin, the big, thick skin. I mean, if you come to think of it, you know, pork belly is nothing but ham. Mm -hmm. You have half, half of that is like, oh, bacon, sorry. You know, bacon, yeah. It's bacon. It's, it's cut bacon, right? So pork belly, come, uh, bacon comes from pork belly. And, and what you do, what the Chinese do is that they, they extracted all the oil and fat from the, from the skin. It becomes very tender and soft and very tasty. So you, every bite, you know, you would have half fat, half the skin and half meat. And that's the kind of thing that, that makes pork belly so interesting. So, so I talk a lot about the pork belly. But certainly, um, as in a lot of cultures, uh, Portugal, for example, Italy, for example, um, pig is the central animal because it's easy to uh, raise. Right. And it doesn't take much to raise it either. 
uh, a cow, you know, you had to feed them with grass and all this stuff and very not, not very environmental friendly, but a pig can be raised easily in the farm and, and it supplies the, all the protein that you need for a good meal. Is now that there's a a burgeoning upper class in China, are they being are they succumbing to the uh, the way of the beef? Is there more beef now? I think uh, so. Being, yeah, I think you find that huh? phenomenon in Japan maybe thirty years ago, right? You know, when they first when they first introduced McDonald's, and and the parents would be all aghast because oh look at what our kids are doing. You know they're eating hamburger and and beef and away from the traditional fish. Right. Oh, so in that sense, I think yeah. There's a obviously a bit modernization. There is a lot of uh, transformation of eating habit. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about duck, which is one of my favorite foods. And I feel like the preparations of like Peking duck mm-hmm. it, to me, it doesn't get any better. Right. Um, right. And and I'm comparing. I you know, shots fired. I'm taking. I'm. I, I will put a Peking duck next to the best cooked French duck. Uh, <laughs> There's something about that lacquered skin, and yes. also I think the other secret is that they blow air into the right. cavity so that so that the skin separates from the from the meat and thus can crisp up really really amazingly. I'm I mean, it's 100%, magical. I'm 100% with you on picking duck. It's magical. I can't get enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what is be the healthy, best... but certainly yeah, tasty. It's not an everyday food. That's why I'm surprised. I, I, if I were you, I would make that your death row meal and save the steamed fish for uh, your health days. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best high-end meal you've ever had? I went to a bunch of three Michelin star restaurants in, in, in France. I've been to, I think, maybe 10, 11 of them. The, the best one I had was in Trois which is uh, run by a uh, in in Rouen in in France is used to be started by a, a brother team and then now Michel Trogro, one of the nephews have taken over and, and it's a wonderful meal and the interesting thing about Trogro was that uh, one of the elder Trogro he picked up on a lot of cooking techniques from from the Japanese hmm. he was invited in 1964 to go to the Tokyo Olympics. You know, as a as a kind of a cultural uh, culinary ambassador, and there he picked up all the presentation of the Japanese cooking, like the kaiseki presentation, and he picked up the freshness of the fish. So his signature dish at Trogro in France is a fairly raw, you know, quickly seared salmon in a sorrel sauce. Yeah. Uh, that that to me was uh, really wonderful, and it's kind of a it's a uh, it's a break with the tradition of a very heavy kind of um, French cooking, uh, and all that he picked up from a, a trip to to uh, to Japan. Wow, yeah, that's what put him on the map was that salmon. Right, exactly. Yeah, what is the best low end meal you've ever had? Well, I had to go back to Singapore, all the hawker center. You know, that's where you get your Hainan chicken rice, your satays, your uh, rojaks, and your pokong soup, and all this nice stuff. And, you know, they can be had for 4 or $5 a, a plate. And then you you go around the stalls and go to different kind of proprietors and, and get their, yeah, each proprietor in the, in, in the food stall 
uh, would would sell the only one or two dishes. Their their thing, right? So yeah. So you would have a Hainan chicken place uh, that will only sell exclusively Hainan chicken rice. Um, yes. And and so you you get you get a lot of variety for for very cheap. And wasn't there one that a Michelin star? Someone I think got a Michelin so. Star? I think so. There was there was one that became, that had a Michelin star. I think he makes. I forgot what it is, but it's a very everyday dish. But yeah. somehow somehow he uh, he caught the attention of Michelin star evaluator and and and, and uh, got his one star. Yeah, I think it's the cheapest Michelin star meal in the world. Right. Okay. I don't know if you're if you're a drinker or not. Not quite, but I do drink a bit. Yeah. Okay. Do you, have you ever? Here's something. Let me tell you something. Okay. And I don't want you to judge me. Okay, Chuck, <laughs> because I, I I am open to all cultures. But man, I have a tough time drinking baiju. Yes, I have this. <laughs> oh, you do. Okay, good. I don't feel that bad about it. It is like right. uh, it is like turpentine. No, it's awful tasting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I have no problem with vodka. I have no problem with other strong stuff. But baiju to me is yucky, fermented. Kind of tasted. It's got that kind of a almost plasticy taste. Yeah. Don't you don't you think? Yeah, it's a there's definitely like some sort of there's a medicinal taste too. Yeah, there's a medicinal rotty fermentedness to it that is exactly like really hard to take down. And then the fact that you realize that it's super expensive also. <laughs> it's like what is that? Why am I paying for this? I think um, that thing is like 90 proof or whatever it may be. <laughs> Yeah, it's wild. So, what is your favorite uh, your favorite drunk food? I would say Japanese snack nuts. You know, this you can get them in J Town and and everywhere else. Uh, these packets of peanuts and senbeis and all kinds of little little things that you snack on. Uh, yeah, those are these, very fun. Yeah, those are those are fun. I I can't get enough of them, especially when you're drunk. You kind of keep popping them in your mouth and. Yeah, hoping hoping for the best. Yeah, exactly. Well, and now it's the next day. You have a hangover. What is uh, your favorite hangover cure? Is there is there a typical Chinese hangover cure? I haven't come across. Uh, but if I was really really hangover, I would get mapo tofu. Yeah, you know the the hot kind of a uh, chili kind of thing that goes down. You know, just cure your hangover right away. Right. Who is your favorite celebrity food personality? I have to say, you know, there are lots of people, but I, I have to say Alice Water of Japanese in up in Berkeley. Yeah, I I live in Berkeley when when she started the restaurant, so I've been there, you know, in in her early days when she was only charging fifteen dollars. I think the first meal she charged was seven fifty U.S. for a three course meal in, in Japanese. That was back in wow. like seventy three or seventy two, and you know, I was eating couple many times there i i'm a big admirer of her uh, the way she transformed american uh, and california cuisine yeah she's fantastic you know it's funny one of my one of my favorite celebrity food personalities actually gave you a blurb on your book and that is martin yan who oh. hosted yan, yan can cook i used right. to love that show when i was a kid <laughs> he was so great i was just talking to martin on the phone today Really? Oh man, uh, we are, we're it. planning to do something in San Francisco. Oh, cool! When we come out of San Francisco, we're gonna do a show like a sort of a. He's gonna cook. I'm gonna talk. That's that's the way oh, we're gonna do this. I love that. He's he's so awesome. I would love to. Uh, I would let me know when that is. I might I might come up for that. We'll do. 
with you. Okay, so we got your desert island food. Now, next question. Is there a food that you can't stand eating? Number one is natto. Natto. Okay, so fermented soybeans. Exactly. And it's not the kind of fermented soybeans you find in my fridge because those are umami-laden fermented bean paste. This is like yucky, yucky. I don't know how you describe it. How would you describe it? I think the best way is, so first of all, it's super slimy. Yes. So exactly. there is a sliminess. Runs down your throat like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, it's an acquired taste, let's say. Yeah. And, and the worst thing is that they eat this for breakfast only. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you get served in a, a, a nice Japanese breakfast, which I don't care for, by the way. I, I never really? care for I never care for traditional ch- I, I want my bacon and eggs. I want my, you know, waffle. I don't I don't really care for what the Japanese serve as breakfast. Raw eggs and nattos and uh miso yeah, soup. And like and, and, and mackerel and uh <laughs> Yeah, like grow mackerel. Okay, you know, it's a fish, but then, you know, they have bangers, you know, so uh but no no. I I, I, I shy away from from Japanese breakfast. What's a typical Chinese breakfast? Usually maybe congee mm. and maybe some noodles if it's want to be. But, you know, that has since been uh, displaced by, you know, bacon and eggs and toast and all kinds of things, right? So yeah, look, the... Uh, the it's uh, not a lost tradition anymore. I mean, you still have these older p- generation that would go to a tea house mm. and have dim sum and have drink yeah. tea, a part of tea. That would be, be a, a nice way of nice Chinese breakfast. And then you have congee and then you have noodles and so forth. Congee is like a, it's like a rice-based porridge. porridge. Yeah. Right. right, right. And you can make it as plain as you want. It's good for your health because uh, you just get the rice in there and, and it's not nutritious. But you can dress it up with, uh, you know, raw fish or, or chicken or beef or whatever you want. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, you can do a variety of things with congee. It's delicious. Yeah. Okay, last question. This is my favorite question, which is, what is your restaurant pet peeve? Waiters who don't know what they're doing and can't tell you what they're serving. That's my thing. Waiters uh, who don't know what they're doing. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I, I can live through anything, basically. I mean, you know, you, you can say, wow, the food is not good, but that's minor compared to if, if I go to a restaurant, I like to be uh, at least have a knowledgeable waiter to say, hey, you know, the, the best waiters you find in, in Chinese restaurants are the people who would say, don't order this, don't order this. This is not fresh. You know, order this one. You know, this came in this morning from the farm or whatever it may be. And this is spoken behind their boss, right? So the yeah. boss is trying to get rid of some of the dish, some of the meats or some of the vegetables. And this waiter will come along and says, yeah, don't, don't order this. You know, I won't recommend it. So, so it's kind of, uh, those are waiters I love. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I'm, I feel like, especially in American restaurants, when they're like, try, you should try this, try that. I always think, oh, they're just trying to get rid of that ingredient because exactly. uh, it's all, exactly. <laughs> I, I like that in Chinese restaurants, it's, it's the opposite. <laughs> Well, only if you have friendly waiters. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, Chuck, such a pleasure. This was so eye-opening for me, and I'm sure it will be for my listeners. Uh, Tell everyone where they can find you. You can go to haveyoueatonyet.ca for Canada, 
I have a website on my book, but you should know that before I wrote the book 20 years ago, I made the film, the same film. So my book is a memoir of my travel from 20 years ago. And that you can find me at ChineseRestaurants.tv. Amazing. Thank it's you so much, Chuck. to remember. Thanks a lot, Dan. It's amazing to talk to you. I really enjoy Iranian food. I, I, I lived in Saudi Arabia for a while, and I traveled through Tehran when the Shah was there. Oh, wow. So before the Khomeini uh, revolution. So I traveled all through Iran for, a long, for about maybe a couple of weeks. So I, I'm really appreciative of the Iranian food, for example. That, uh, that's really great. Wow, that's so cool. And yeah, I hope one day we'll have more of a variety of Persian restaurants in America than, than we do now. Uh, right, right. I wish the same fate to Persian food that Chinese food has had in the diaspora. That's very inspirational. Yeah. Thank you, Chuck. This is so cool. And if I ever see you in America, we're getting some Kung Pao chicken. Take care. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.